Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. I'm Oh yeah, Richard Parr, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because that's the name of the show. I'm going to start this week's podcast with a confession. For those of you who listened to episode two with Olympic hockey champion Ellen Hoog, she tells me off about eating McDonald's. And on Friday, guess what I did? Yes, I had a Big Mac with medium fries and medium Coke. And again, I hated every bite of it. I enjoyed it, but I felt guilty with every bite, is what I mean. McDonald's, you know, as a kid, I always enjoyed McDonald's and KFC and Burger King. But then you hit a certain age, especially if you live in Doha like me. There's this thing called the Doha Stone. As soon as you move to Qatar... Because the portion sizes are like American sizes, because you don't walk anywhere, because very often it's too hot or things too far, so you're always in a car and you go from one air-conditioned office to an air-conditioned apartment to an air-conditioned shop, that you don't walk anywhere, you're eating huge amounts of food, and you ultimately put on a stone. And um, for those of you who've been following my career, you may have noticed in 2012, 2013 time, I got a little large. Uh, fortunately, I've combated that and a lot of that is by cutting out fast food cutting out coke cutting out a lot of carbs but you know i i do believe in a cheat day why do i believe in the cheat in a cheat day because the rock says you can have a cheat day if the rock says you can have a cheat day that means i can have a cheat day but i still didn't really enjoy it and i even felt fat the next day i didn't feel good i felt bloated and all i kept thinking is ellen hooger's thinking no, Richard, no. No, Richard, no. Ellen continues to mention an apple pie. Have an apple pie. Yes, if you want an apple pie, have an apple pie. But uh, I went for McDonald's. Um, you know, I was rushing to get somewhere. I needed something to eat quickly, and it became McDonald's. So I feel pretty bad about that. But that's what happens when you get in a bad routine. And I've got a fantastic job. I get to meet some of the greatest athletes in the world. I get to cover some of the greatest sports events in the world. But the one bad thing about working in the media industry is you work funny hours. And the last couple of weeks, I worked like 10 days in a row, all on night shifts. And it really can screw your body clock up. 
So I'm now not getting up until one o'clock in the afternoon, at which point, you know, when you're in a rush to get somewhere, that's when the bad habits creep in. So Ellen, I'm very sorry I ate the McDonald's. I'll try not to do it again. Anyway, this week's guest is a rugby world champion. He won in 1991 with Australia. He was one of the stars of the tournament. It's David Campisi. He's a really interesting bloke. He's quite a forthright bloke. He's had a lot of um, arguments, so to speak, with the British press, the English press in the past. Um, But he's very friendly with me. He's a really good talker. He's a very interesting guy. And he covers a whole load of topics on the best in the world with Richard Parr. Um, In particular, the importance of making mistakes but learning from them, his pre-match routine, um, and just about how pedantic he is about basic skills. He mentions that in his coaching career, he was coaching some of the greatest players on the planet. But rather than giving them his goose steps or his innovative moves that he used in his playing career, he was really pedantic that they got the basic skills right. You know, the catching, the passing, being in the scrum. He says, if you can't do the basics, there's no point in doing anything more than that. And he mentions the coaching apps he's doing and you can find them on his webpage. That's davidcampisi.com. And he also talks a lot about how he uses Twitter, how he, he gets his thoughts out there to the public and you can contact him at davidcampisi11. David was in London for six weeks during the Rugby World Cup, which was ultimately won by New Zealand. And speaking of New Zealand, this podcast comes in the wake of the recent death of the All Blacks legend, Jonah Lomu. I mentioned in my conversation with David that when I watched Jonah in 1995, I was just awestruck. The way he just ran over England was incredible. And David gives his thoughts and his feelings towards the star in this interview. So listen out for that. Before we get to David, I want to tell you that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to www.audibletrial.com slash best. That's www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely a sports fan and they've got lots of sports titles to choose from. A lot of autobiographies. Dan Carter, who was instrumental in New Zealand winning the 2011 and 2015 Rugby World Cups for New Zealand. He's got an autobiography which you can download and listen to at audible.com. There's also books from Stephen Gerrard, Sir Alex Ferguson, Big Sam Allardyce, if you're a a, a Hammers fan or a Sunderland fan right now. And if you're a WWE fan, you can get Daniel Bryan's book. Yes, 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 yes. I'm a big Daniel Bryan fan, so I'll most likely download that one. So just remember, if you want your free audiobook download and your 30-day free trial, go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's www.audibletrial.com audibletrial.com forward slash best. Best means best in the world. David Campisi's best of the world. And he's coming up next. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. 
Well, David, welcome to the Best in the World with Richard Parr. Uh, obviously, this is where we speak to some of the most elite athletes on the planet. Um, just before we get on to your career, um, obviously, this podcast is in the in the wake of the recent death of uh, Jonah Lomu. Um, I believe you spent some time with him in England the last few months. Um, would you just like to say a few words about him before we get started on you? Yeah, look, it's a shame. I mean, it's, it's a, it was very sad to, to hear because I spent like, three weeks ago, I was with Jonah. Um, we had a function in the day of the World Cup final. Um, we did a function together as well. So we've known each other for many, many years. Uh, there's a mutual respect there. And I think when you play against somebody who, who was so talented and obviously uh, the way he played the game was different to everyone else. I mean, we... We got to know each other. I marked him a few times. Um, I didn't see much of him, unfortunately, because he probably ran over top of me. But uh, he, he was one of those very humble guys off the field. Um, you know, there's a lot of footage of him going around the world. Uh, he's used with the IRB for the World Cup, the, the Olympic Games, uh, the Sevens. So, uh, yeah, look, it's very sad, but uh, for a guy who, who had so much to offer, um, who... I suppose in 40 years of life, I think he would have found that he probably would have done a, a lot of things that if he was 80, would be do, do the same sort of stuff. So he got a, he put a lot in, um, and I think that's what his passion was. His passion was rugby, and and even, you know, when I saw him in England three weeks ago, he told me he was off to New Zealand for a few days, then he was off to America, then he was off to Chile. So a very, very busy person. So, you know, it, it's a shame. And uh, he's one of those guys that when we spoke, uh, we talked about you know, how the family was and everything about life. It wasn't really about rugby. Yeah, it sounds like he was living life uh, all the way till the end. I'll never forget when he trampled all over England in 1995. That was truly eye-opening experience for me. One of the most impressive rugby performances I've certainly ever seen. Yeah, look, I think it was. It was that's how people remember him. But I think that, you know, I, saw, I played against him in the sevens. You know, and one-on-one, like, in, you know, we've got that much feel. It's, it's a lot harder than 15s when you've got a lot more f- players. But, uh, yeah, he made the most of his ability. Um, and people wanted to see him with the ball. That was what they came to see. And, and that's what brought people to the game. And that's what entertainment's all about. And he was one of the best. Well, you were also an entertainer. And um, what I'd like to first know is how you got brought to the game in your early life. When did you first get interested into rugby, David? Well, very interesting because in Australia and most of the world, it's a, it's a private school sports or public school in England. So I, I actually played uh, a rugby league game, uh, which is really big in Australia, out in the New South Wales country areas. And uh, Queanbeyan, where I was born, 21,000 people, 10 kilometres outside Canberra, um, was a, a rugby league country area. And uh, I, brought up, I was brought up with rugby league. Uh, my mum uh, watched uh, rugby league, so I watched it and I played it from under eight to sixteen. Uh, I represented every age in the ACT rugby league team. Uh, played a couple of years of Aussie rules. I think it was about uh, ten and twelve. Uh, played rugby at school, and the reason we played rugby at school at the government school was because one of the teachers uh, who t- who taught there was. Uh, it was a coach of a rugby union team out in Canberra. So that's how I really got started. So um, then got to the stage where I was playing rugby union on a Saturday, rugby league on a Sunday. Uh, played golf in between, won a schoolboy championship at 15. So I think I was fortunate as well because my father was Italian, had no idea about sports. So there was never any pressure uh, to do anything. I'd just go out there and play. And 
uh, at 16, we would lost the rugby league grand final, and they sort of blamed me for losing, so I quit rugby league. And then the year after, I went over to watch a fourth grade side um, to watch, and they played. And after I went to the coach, I said, "Do you guys need a fullback?" And I said, "Yep." And that was in 1979, and that's how I started. So it sounds like you had a very busy childhood. How did you fit everything in there? Um, did, did your studies kind of go on the back burner? Uh, unfortunately, there wasn't any studies. <laughs> <laughs> so my sacrifice was studies to play sports, and uh, uh, unfortunately, it's, it didn't um, didn't really help me in life. Uh, if it wasn't for rugby, I don't know what I'd be doing. But uh, yeah, I, I think that was it. I think that I chose uh, the sporting field instead of the academic field, and. Um, and that's why I think I'm still involved in rugby a lot more than I probably was when I was playing because that's that's been a livelihood. And obviously, World Cups come around every four years, you can do well, but obviously in between, you struggle. But yeah, look, I, I was a country town back in those days in the 70s. I mean, that's all you did was play sports. Um, you know, I remember I played cricket for second grade, cricket team f- uh, for my uh, town as well. So I uh, played at school and that was what life was in a country town, I was playing sports. So... Uh, but what I've realised in life is, uh, which I'm trying to teach my kids, education is very, very important. So I'm pushing them to education and playing sport, not just playing sport. Did all the sports come naturally or did you just, was it because you played rugby more or did you enjoy rugby more or, or did you actually feel that this one is the most natural for you? Yeah, look, I think what happens is you play every sport possible, then something happens. Uh, one day you make a choice or... As for myself, the rugby league, you know, we lost and they blame me. So that sort of turned me off. And then I went looking for something else. So that was it. So when I played fourth grade, it was, it was probably the best year of my life playing sport because there was all the old guys had been there, done that, who've retired or come down to watch a game. And uh, I was a young guy learning. So they would teach you as you were playing. And the fun you have when you do that is amazing because everyone's trying to teach you. Um, what I've learned now about rugby is, uh, which I've done a lot of coaching, is because the game is a different game uh, now, the older guys don't play. So you're not going to get to fourth grade and you're going to get a 38, 40-year-old guy trying to help you because there is no 40-year-olds. You know, Even fourth grade now, most clubs are, are 20, 20 year olds who haven't got time to train, but they haven't got the knowledge. So they don't really teach you as a lot what I was taught. So I, was, I think I was very fortunate. Um, and that's what I mean. I just went over and played, started, and, and I enjoyed playing, and the guys were great, and that's how I started Rugby Union. How difficult was the change from league to union? We've seen a player like Sam Burgess play for England in the World Cup, and he's now decided to go back to rugby league. Um, what, difficult did you, what difficulties did you find in, in the switch? I don't think I had difficulties. I think I was very fortunate because there was no real professionalism back in those days. Remember rugby, you know, as a kid, rugby league and rugby, you, you play for fun. And rugby wasn't a professional sport until 1996. So really it was about learning and watching. Uh, and I remember watching a guy called Michael O'Connor who played for the Wallabies. And one day I watched him play and he did a sidestep one way and the other. I was like, oh, I've got to try that. Um, and that's how you learn. You, tr- you watch, you learn, you try. And that's, I was one of those people that always tried, um, never given up, and uh, if it fails, you keep on going. So that's that what really sort of helped me. There was no um, perception of what I wanted to be or how I wanted to play. I just went out there and tried things, and if it worked, you were a genius. If it didn't, you weren't very good. <laughs> 
And of course, you were considered quite the innovator with the goose step and, and different moves. Um, you mentioned O'Connor there. Were there any other players you, you had those ideas from? Or, or there, was there anything out of rugby which kind of gave you these uh, ideas of these things you try on the pitch? No, look, I think Michael O'Connor was one because he was from the same area. But obviously the Ellers. Um, and I was fortunate to play with them. And I liked the way they played. You know, um, as I said, like Mark Ella and myself and the Ella brothers, we all come from a, a government school background, not the private school. So we tried things and you didn't get in trouble. Where if you look at private schools, you know, they're actually sort of structured in certain ways. Um, and when I came into the Australian team when I was only 19, uh, you know, we had guys in the background, in the back line who were from government schools, they, sorry, private schools. And they always used to say, well, why don't we do it this way? And Mark said, let's just do it, you know, and that's what I'd learned. And if you don't try, you never know. So I was very fortunate to come through Australian rugby at an era where we had guys who wanted to try things and we had a coach who allowed us to do it. So that really helped. From what, what I've, I've read and what I've seen, some would argue that your style was uh, high risk, high reward. Would that ever frustrate any of the players if some of the things wouldn't um, go as planned? Yeah, look, I think there was. I think that's, um, I think what happens in life, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people have tried different inventions that they fail. So, look, you know, I was the kind of player that I realised that, look, you get one shot at this in life. Um, so when I retire, I want to look back and say, geez, you know, I've tried everything, I've had a few failures, but I've learned from those failures. And, you know, as the, the more you play, the more responsibility you have. And I think as a young player, obviously, I was very... Um, ill-disciplined in some ways um, but you know we, we can actually talk about 89 you know British Lions when I made a mistake but two years later we won the World Cup so you know it, I think sometimes in life you've got to make mistakes to get better so yes high reward you know high risk high reward but the thing is as long as you learn from the mistakes and don't keep on doing the same mistake you know that's where you get you know in trouble but I was very fortunate that I you know, I had the, the pedigree in me to, to obviously make a mistake and say, right, let's not just, <laughs> I've learnt, let's move on, don't do that again. So then you try other things, you know, and that, that's, what, uh, that's what I think life's about as well. You mentioned 89 um, and the Lions tour. Uh, obviously, the press gave you quite a lot of criticism. How do you cope with criticism as an, as an elite athlete? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, at the time, um, you know, <sighs> It's hard because in Australia, you know, rugby union wasn't the number one sport and it never, well, it really hasn't been the number one sport. So we were playing behind rugby league and Aussie rules. So we really uh, struggled to get people to come. And I think by playing, this, playing the style of rugby uh, that we did, it was high risk. And if it did fail, obviously the journos didn't like that because rugby was a conservative sport before all the rugby league, you know, came over and professionalism. So it was really, you know, school teachers... Uh, coaching and the pupils were all do the right thing and do this and do that. So we, we actually changed the mindset a bit. Uh, in Australia, we obviously the World Cup 91, winning the World Cup 91, changed a lot of people's perception of the sport. Uh, a lot of people wanted to play because they could see we had fun. you know. Um, and yes, the journos were there. The journos, the guys I grew up with who followed us for 30 years, and I think Greg Rowden uh, wrote an interesting article during the World Cup from ESPN Sports. Uh, if you have a look at it, about, you know, I sort of changed the way people looked at the sport because of the way I played. I wasn't the norm. 
Um, Grant Fox said, you know, I was a cheeky player who brought this goose step that had never been seen before. So everyone's going, oh, what is this? We've got to go and watch this. And that's what it's about to me. That's what entertainment is. So the journos um, can be really good or they can be really bad. <laughs> so the thing is, is to actually consistently do the good things. And if you do make a mistake, they give you a hard time. But uh, as I said, you know, you've got to make mistakes to be the best. And if you don't make mistakes, you're not going to be the best. And of course, at one point, you were the best with the world record for tries with 64. Do you have a favourite out of them? Um, look, I just think it's hard to, to go back and look. Um, you know, if you look at the Barbarians in 84, look, there's, there's a lot of occasions. A lot of occasions you scored great tries when the pressure was on and there's a lot of times you scored tries when the pressure was off. So, you, you know, it's any opportunity to score a try was fantastic. Um, you know, when there's obviously I played for club rugby, I played in Italy, uh, played around the world Barbarians game. So some of the tries there... They don't actually get recorded because they're not test, they're not a test uh, game or record. So, you know, I, I think any opportunity to score, but obviously you think of the World Cup because of the pressure. Uh, the one that Tim Horan he scored, the one that crossed there, um, uh, ninety-four against Samoa in Sydney. I picked the ball up left-handed on the run on the full. Just little things, you know. There's always different scenarios. You know, I could probably pick another four different good tries. You know, it really depends on the moments and uh, what you call as a good try. To me, they're all good tries, but to other people, so like you mentioned Jonah, you can never forget his four tries against England. That stands out. But if you look at Jonah's record, he's probably scored better tries. But because of the occasion, that's what people think are the best tries. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. David's a great talker, isn't he? We'll have more from him in just a moment. I just wanted to remind you that today's show is brought to you by 
audible.com. You can get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download with Audible. All you have to do is help me out and go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. It would be really good if you can help me help support this show so we can continue to do it every Wednesday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on my website, www.richardparr.net. Please try and sign up and download an audiobook. Like I say, it's for free. There's no there's no gimmicks in this. It's free. A free 30-day trial, a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com forward slash best. That's free, like this podcast is, like all of these great tips you're getting right now from David Campisi. A World Cup winner back in 1991 with Australia. So what more can you ask for? All these things are for free. So please make the most out of them. We've got more from David in just a moment. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. David, talk a little bit about your pre-match routine and what you would do to kind of get focused for a match. Yeah, I think um, my preparation was... Uh, the important parts, uh, knowing before a test ride, I've done everything. And to me, it was like if I was in the dressing room, confidence and you know relaxed and all that. The other players would probably say that. Well, obviously, it's going to be a good game. But if you're just slightly injured or you're not confident, the players can sense that. So, uh, yeah, look, I was one of those players that uh, made sure that, uh, as Alan Jones said, I left, I left no stone unturned to make sure that before every game, I was fully prepared. I was physically and mentally prepared. Um, I would make sure that I always sat on the front of the bus because I always wanted to see where I was going. Uh, I'd get in the dressing room. I'd be the first person to have a massage, uh, first person to get strapped. Um, I'd make sure I put my left foot boot on first. Um, I would do the same routine. Uh, my mum, in uh, after 88 uh, against the All Blacks, uh, she found this poem in the paper from a lady called Nancy Sims, Winners Take Chances. So I started to read that before every test. And that was my way of preparing for a game. doesn't matter if it was against Italy, the All Blacks, South Africa. Every test would be the same preparation. And that's what I would do. Um, so preparation to me was the... Because if you hadn't prepared um, before the game, uh, obviously during the game when certain situations happen and you weren't prepared, um, that's when you get in trouble. Were there any defeats you had where your pre-match uh, routine didn't go as planned and you kind of blamed that for it at all? No, no, because you can't blame routine. You've got to blame your person yourself. You can't, play, you can't blame the bounce of the ball or a referee's decision. You've just got to make sure that you do your job. Uh, you know, for me, it was coming off the field knowing that you played well. You don't need a coach to tell you that you've played bad. You know, and again, if you come off... I feel you did play bad. The next day, I would go out to an oval. Uh, if I was my kicking, I would practice kicking for an hour by myself. So I would actually make sure that I would try and fix the things that went wrong. Uh, club rugby is the same. You know, you go and play fun, and if you, if you did something wrong, uh, the next day you go and do certain things just to, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But for me, um, and I think that if you speak to a lot of players, I was a professional before professionalism. And by meaning that is that my attitude was a professional. 
You know, yes, I played in Italy from 84 to 92, 93, you know, six months there, six months in Australia. But my attitude was always the same. It doesn't matter what game I played. If I played in the Barbarian game, um, and if I went to Bermuda to play in a game, my attitude was the same. I didn't say, oh, this is a need. And that's the way I looked at the game. And that's the way, you know, in 2013, I played uh, against the uh, British Lions Classics in Sydney. Like I was 50, 51 years old, playing against 39-year-olds. But my attitude was still the same. Did anything change on the Rugby World Cup final day? Uh, were your nerves uh, really heightened? Just uh, walk us through that day and your emotions on it. Yeah, look, I think it was a very emotional tournament. Um, six weeks with the English press was tough. Uh, that last week was probably more mental process than the physical process because you can't get stronger and fitter. You can't look for that extra five metres um, because it's not there. It's, it is a process over six weeks. Uh, we were very fortunate, obviously, you know, to have a great side. We beat the All Blacks in Lansdowne Road. So we, we were the world champions, really, because we beat the world champions. But unfortunately, we had another game against England. Um, that year, we beat England in Sydney by 40-15. Uh, so we knew realistically that we were a better team. But you've got to go and play the 80 minutes. Um, when we arrived in London, uh, our first training session, you could sense the guys weren't really up there. And I said to Nick, I said, mate, I've got to, you know, I can sense it. You know, well, the guys are pretty out of it. You know, they think it's going to be easy. So we realised mentally we had to get up. Um, so the day, game day was exactly the same. You just go through the you go through the routine. You've been there six weeks. It's another game of rugby. Yes, you know, you've waited probably your whole career to be in this moment. Um, and you just make sure that you do your job. So whatever, whatever you did on the field affected the team. If I dropped the ball, it affected the team. If I did a bad kick, it affected the team. And that's what you, you learn after a while. It's actually a team performance. Um, you know, and everything in that game that you, you do, it, it could make an outcome of, the, the, of winning or losing the game. So you made sure physically and mentally that you played, but you made sure that you did everything that you, in your right as a player, that you do your role correctly. Because if you don't, if it doesn't fit into the puzzle, um, well, obviously that's, that's the, the opportunity, the opportunity the opposition will take. So you made sure that you confident, you did your job. Um, and you relied on everyone else to do their job. So what did it feel like when you finally lifted that trophy? Look, I think it was, um, it was a very emotional moment because I think that you don't realise that now you're the best. You've beaten everybody, so where do you go from here? <laughs> um, and also the hard work over the years, the, the, the criticism you copped uh, when you played bad, uh, everyone loves you when you play good. Um, so really it was just for Australia. I mean, you know, that's it. You're an Australian ambassador on and off the field. And, and for all those kids, you know, for your family, everyone who believed in you, uh, it's just one of those moments that you look back and time stops. And then you've realised that you just, you know, you are the best team in the world uh, for the first time. And, you know, probably that's the last time you get to, to really, you know, to be on a podium like that. So you've got to enjoy it. So how difficult was it? Uh, to retire from the sport? Oh, look, I think it was pretty easy. I think I'd been around a long time. I think I started 82 Test Rugby and I finished in 96. Uh, different era of professionalism. Uh, didn't really change the way I looked at the game. It was just that I was a lot older um, and I think that we had change of coaches. 
And when you had a coach who was there for a long time, who, who knew your capability on the field and how you need to be treated, a new coach came in. Uh, you had to watch TV to see if you were selected. Um, I went on tour in 96, played my 100th cap. Uh, then I got dropped. And when he called me the day of the Scotland game, the training session a couple of days before, he, the journos needed the team, so he called me over. Greg Smith, he was. And I said, um, and he said, mate, uh, you're not picking. I said, I know. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you haven't spoken to me for 10 days. I said, and I'm not silly. I've been around a long time. And I said to him, can I say something? I said, mate, I won't swear, but I said, mate, you're the worst communicator I've ever met in my life. I said, I said we're in a team. I said, if you want the best out of us, you've got to tell us what we need to do to be get better. You can't sit there and ignore us. So I basically blasted him. I was on the bench, um, and then I got to play another test against Wales. Uh, but that was it. So I just knew after that mentally I, I can't handle this. You know, you, For me as a player, the way I was, I need to be told how I am going. If I'm in the frame, not in the frame, what do I have to do to get better? Um, you know, so every play is different. So it was a new era now. You know, things were changing. The jersey was changing. Everything, you know, traditions were changing. You know, and I was brought up pretty pretty much in a traditional area where you go out there and have fun and play the game. Now it's, it's a job. Uh, that didn't really bother me, but it was just the other way the other people perce- perceived how they, their roles were. And, um, yeah, so it was pretty easy to, to retire from international rugby. Uh, that was in 96. I played a couple of years, uh, sevens, went to the Commonwealth Games in 98, uh, retired from there, 99, still playing club rugby. And uh, I was on a Tuesday night in Sydney, absolutely pouring down rain. I looked outside and I said, OK, I'm, I've retired. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> no press conference, no crying, none of that. So I said, right, I've just had enough and retired. That was it. So is there anything now that you know that you wish you'd known as a player? Um, no, not really. I think that I tried everything. I tried, you know, my training regime was, you know, I had people that helped me, a good friend of mine, a guy called David Crotty, who I met in 88 in London, who's one of my best mates, who I stayed uh, with in London for the World Cup. He sort of helped me train a bit differently, um, so I was always open to new ideas. You know, it wasn't the old go through the old routine thing. I actually, I, was, I wanted to learn about training, uh, how to run properly, to get a sprint coach. Uh, there was guys who helped me in Queanbeyan. We used to go for uh, lunch, uh, run, runs at lunch and sprint training and show me how to sprint properly and to do little things like that. And on the way, there's always these people who... Give their time and effort, you know, and that's, I wanted to that. I wanted to be better. I didn't rely on last week to get me through next week because I always knew that if you want to be the best, you've got to think ahead. Um, so looking back now, no, there's nothing really I'd, I'd change. Um, people always bring up the British lines, the mistakes. I said, yeah, well, I mean, that's part of life, you know. I wouldn't change it because that's what made me a better player. Um, looking, looking back also, my time in Italy in the 80s was probably the best of my life because I was a young 23-year-old after the Grand Slam 84. Um, shifted off to Italy, left in this small town by myself, couldn't speak the, the language, and I was thrown into something totally different. But then the, uh, the coach, uh, a good friend of mine, Vittorio Monari, um, came to me after a couple of games and said, mate, we want you to play number 10. I said, what? He said, well, 
you're getting smashed in the back line at 15, so all of a sudden, so I played number 10. So I had to kick right foot, left foot, um, had to try different things. So that really helped me as an international winger. So those experiences I was thrown into, but I was eager to learn. And that's what made me the player I was. How quickly was it to pick up the language? Oh, look, it was good. It was hard because Italians wanted to speak English all the time. So it made it actually harder. Um, Peter Fitzsimons, Michael Light, a lot of players went overseas to play. But obviously, it's better to go to a town where no one speaks English because you have to learn. I was a bit lazy. I do speak Italian, but uh, it was hard when, you know, you got guys around you. We had three Australians eventually. Uh, David Knox uh, went to Milan with Bellasconi. We had Mark Eller, Jason Little, Tim Gavin, uh, Brad Burke. So we had foreigners all the time. So when you get together, you speak English, you don't speak Italian. And the Italians want to speak English. So it was very difficult. Uh, but as you know, any language, they give you the swear words first. That didn't really help, <laughs> especially about telling referees where to go in their own language. <laughs> but, uh, look, I mean, that's, that's what life's about. That's the experience that we go for. And, um, and I, I just think that that's, that's what sort of uh, helped me as a player. And that was the best part of my life, going to Italy for six months, uh, Australia for six months, and, you know, and playing the game that you wanted to play. And after being a player, you went into coaching. Did you bring that level of professionalism you said you brought in the early days of playing rugby to your coaching? Were you a very meticulous planner? Oh, yes. Not a planner, but uh, I was fortunate to do a lot of things. And I was fortunate in 2005 uh, to come over and help the Natal Sharks with Dick Muir um, and his team. And when I came over, I was the skills coach. Now... You've got to realise in this team there was John Smith, uh, there was uh, uh, John Ackerman, there was AJ Fenter, Butch James, Ruan Pina, Brad Barrett, uh, JP Peterson, Francis Stain, uh, Rory Cockett. So I had all these guys I was coaching. So, you know, for me it was really just going out there and doing, and all I did was very, very simple basic skills because. The way I was brought up, if you can't do the basics, you can't do the flag. Mm. So these guys, I think, after me looking at me, said, what is this guy all about? And even Dick Muir said, I was a bit pedantic about basic skills. He said, I was really feral about it. I said, no, 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 we do it again. Do the simple things. Do the... And he actually sometimes got a bit annoyed because I was doing the simple things right. And that's what life's rugby's about, basics. Um, so, yeah, so I was. I was a bit – not the flair because – Flares really players trying things, but if you can't do these simple things, you can't do the flare things. So, you know, I suppose I was fortunate with Dick because the team went from last to first in two years. So, I'm not, you know, I was part of a, a very good coaching setup. Um, and the players wanted to learn, which was probably the most important thing. And are you doing much coaching these days? Yeah, whenever I go around the world, I coach. Um, I went to Scotland last this year, early in February, and I said to the guy, I said, look, you know, if there's any chance of trying to help some team coach, I'd love to go. So I went and coached the local side, froze my backside off in Scotland in the middle of February. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was fun. I always bring a fun element because you, you've got to have fun. The year before, I went to uh, Wales. Robert Jones, who was a British Lions number nine, uh, did a function. said, what are you doing on Tuesday? I said, oh, down near Blackheath. Um, Sorry, Neath, and I said, why? So well, my brother's got his team. They got the final this week. I said, yeah, I'd love to go. Went down, pouring rain, borrowed a pair of boots, stood there in the rain, 
played touch, did a couple of skills, and loved it. Uh, World Cup uh, six weeks ago, coached a Sunday team, coached an under-15, two young teams. So, yeah, I do a lot of coaching, uh, but also I've, I've just released uh, some rugby apps, Skills and Drills by David Campisi, very, very simple, basic skills. So they're available on my webpage now. Um, though I do, I do love coaching. I try and help. Uh, I've done a seminar this year at Tux University in Pretoria about basic skills uh, because I get sick of watching rugby where guys can't catch and pass under pressure. <laughs> and in your everyday life now, are you a routine kind of person? Uh, yeah, I try. Well, try to obviously get up, go take my kids to school. You know, at seven o'clock they're at school. Try and go to the gym and get on and do what I have to do. But obviously, you know, nine weeks of the World Cup was pretty uh, disorientating for a lot of things. Um, you know, you're speaking to midnight, you're getting home by one, you've got to get up early the next day. So sort of threw the routine out. Um, just as so I've just been in Perth for four, three days last week. I'm off to Sydney for next week for another three days, and then I'm hopefully back into routine again. But, uh, yeah, so you, your weight goes up and down, up and down. You eat badly, you eat good things. Um, so, yeah, it, it is hard, but um, I think routine by playing sport has really helped, you know, trying to look after manage your life as well, which um, sometimes can be difficult. Did you think about diet much in your playing days? Oh, yes, um, much so. I um, didn't eat a lot of meat, a lot of pasta. Uh, Italy would be training three nights a week at home at nine, have a half a kilo of pasta by myself, uh, but train every day. So it was like a routine that's... You know, you knew, and then day games, I'd eat uh, fresh fruit with yogurt and honey, and that was it. Then all the other players decided to eat it, and the other players decided to strap every part of their body because I did. So whatever the foreigner did, the locals did. So sometimes it wasn't the best thing for the team. <laughs> well, David, I've seen you've been very busy on Twitter. You seem to be very social. Um, how yeah. much do you enjoy that? And also maybe tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and maybe follow some of your basic skills. Yeah, look, I think Twitter came because of the Rugby World Cup 2011. I was with MasterCard. I was an ambassador. And one of the things they wanted was Twitter, and that was new then, so I joined. Uh, yes, I've been in trouble a few times, a few silly comments. Um, upset a few people, but, you know, to me, life's about expressing what you feel. Um, but there is a, a new one called Kicker, which actually started in the World Cup, which I actually found very interesting. You say you post a little video before a game, what you think. Um, the final, you can talk before the game, at halftime in the game and after a game. So it actually gives you an opportunity for players to actually put a video out there and people can actually like it, dislike it, say, well, it's great because it's we're like it's at the game. And you can actually write a blog, so not limited to 140 characters. Uh, look, it's an opportunity that people who followed you around the world as a player couldn't really speak to you, can now if they want to do... Ask any questions. Obviously, it's it's easier, uh, but also to watch a game, uh, talk about referees like the Andre Joubert, uh, sorry Craig Joubert incident against Scotland. Mm. You know, I was very really disgusted with the, some of the players, ex-players, blaming the referee. And I said, guys, if Scotland caught the ball in the line out, did the basics, we wouldn't be in this position. That sort of stuff that you you know bring people back to reality. Uh, and obviously the Jonah thing, you know, you can post a video straight away and talk about Jonah. Uh, look, it's an opportunity for people to talk about, to talk to you, about you, and you can get a message from us that they've never really had an opportunity to. So 
It is great, uh, but again, sometimes people do like to abuse you because they don't like what you say. Um, but uh, yeah, no, my 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 actually apps are on my website, davidcampese.com. Um, go on, and as I said, you can actually leave a message if you want to ask any questions about the skills or about a bit about training. You know, we're always available to to do that. So yeah, so that's that's how I started. Um, it's not going to be on iTunes yet because I. Obviously, everything's at a cost, so we're just doing it through my webpage at the moment. So there have been a few sales, but I just need a bit more publicity to to get people around the world to actually realise how good uh, the basic skills of the games can be. Yeah, sounds very important. What's your Twitter address, David? Uh, David at David Campisi eleven. At David Campisi eleven. Well, I'll put a link to that when I put this iTunes episode out. There is it's just David Campisi. 11 or just David Campisi is my my uh, Facebook page. Well, David, this has been a fantastic chat, really insightful. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed everything you've said. David, thank you for being the best in the world. Thanks very much, Richard. I appreciate it. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. So that's it. Episode 5 with David Campisi, 1991 Rugby World Cup winner with Australia. Really interesting guy. Please go onto his website, davidcampisi.com and download his coaching apps if you're into rugby or your kids are into rugby and you want to learn from the best like we've just done on this podcast. And what I really like about this show so far from our five episodes is every episode We've had a guest from a different nationality. I'm really bringing you a true global perspective. First episode, Chester Williams, South African. Second one, Ellen Hoog. She's from the Netherlands. Third episode, Alfonso Cunningham. He's from Jamaica. Fourth episode, Andy Tennant. He's from England. And fifth episode, David Campisi from Australia. Next week, we've got a German Football World Cup winner from 1990. The first goalkeeper ever to keep a clean sheet in a World Cup final. He was only 23 years old at the time. He then went on to win two Champions League titles with Real Madrid and he's now a pundit with being sports in the United States. Of course, I'm talking about Bodo Ilgner. If you've got any questions for him, please send me a tweet at Richard underscore Parr or go to my website www.richardparr.com Net. But until then, I hope you have a fantastic week and try to be the best in the world. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.